Welcome to Radius of Reason, episode 24. I'm Levon with my mega pseudo-intellectual and co-host, Andre. Hello, hello. And today we've got a wonderful guest, Brock, a former neuroscientist and business owner turned school teacher. He's also a part-time rock star and a self-proclaimed socialist. This is a great conversation. Uh, we sat down with Brock to talk about late-stage capitalism, the prospect of socialism in America, and also the hope that's presented by Gen Z to save us all. Uh, great conversation. Really hope you enjoy it. Brock, why do you hate America? Um, um, so I don't, (laughs) I don't hate America. Although honestly, there's not the first time I've like encountered that thing. Um, just because like when I moved to Canada, it was funny. I moved to Canada. I went to grad school in Canada. Mm -hmm. And, um, when I went there, I was probably my most anti-American. I was so angry about America stuff. And then when I moved to Canada, like there was so much pushback against America stuff at the time. I ended up playing devil's advocate half the time. Like, well, okay, America's not that bad. Like, come on. Um, I just think that I think that America has a tremendous influence in world culture and world. Um, you know, it's a leader. Uh, it's the it's the leader, I suppose, um, in the world, and it has a huge influence. And it just doesn't do a great job with that. I think it could be doing so much better. It's. I feel the way about America as I do about like billionaires, right? Like, I just don't inherently <laughs> like that. Um, I don't like what they do with their money. I don't like what they do with it. I don't know that they should have that much power, and I don't think they do a great job with it. Um, so I wouldn't say that I hate America, but I definitely like have a lot of critiques about it. Do you think there was any point in time where America was getting it right? As in, in it doesn't have to be in, in recent history, but if we had to point to a moment when the American project was heading down the right path, do we have anything like that in history of our country? That it's a great question, right? Because like, I mean, uh, everything's nuanced, right? Like, no, no empires have ever been, you know, perfect or anything like that. <laughs> I think, I think right after World War II, when we were doing like Marshall Plan stuff and helping uh, set up, you know, uh, governments around Europe and stuff, right. maybe maybe before we t- threw too much into the Truman Doctrine, um, but uh, around that time, the, America was seen as like it was doing good things. The Marshall Plan is, was a huge success, mm-hmm. um, and I honestly think to some degree they did have good. That's one always the question I have is like. Is it bad faith, right? Or do these people honestly believe a lot of the stuff that they do, right? Like the Dulles brothers or whatever, right? <laughs> are, they, are they just, were they just genuinely over the top evil? Or did they believe, did they believe they were doing good things? Um, and so I think at that time, America genuinely was trying to be a good place, trying to do good things. Um, and I think, I don't know, I think after like LBJ in Vietnam and all that, it just really took a turn for people not trusting the government and the government just doubled down into that kind of thing where they were mm-hmm. just like, all right, fine, if you don't trust us, then screw you. And, you know, it became the whole thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think uh, the, the U.S. as a world superpower, is that, even if they became a superpower through nefarious motives, do you think that's a bad thing to have the U.S. as a superpower versus what else could have been? Like, like the, is in like the absence of a power, like a power vacuum or like, yeah, exactly. uh, um, I think, 
You know, I think that having a superpower is not inherently a bad thing. Um, mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I, it's hard with alternatives. It's like saying, like, oh, I'm not a monarchist, right? I don't think kings or stuff. But there have been plenty of kings that were great and were very effective, right? You can point to a million that were god-awful. Um, so I don't know inherently that having a, a power that's over, you know, able to overdo or oversee or, you know, something like that or, or lead the thing is inherently bad. Is America's role in it great for it? Um no, honestly, no. I don't. I don't. I don't. Would somebody else be a better thing? Is there a better alternative that I have? No, right. It's so easy to criticize. It's never. You know. I don't. I don't have like a. Oh, China should take over that role or anything. But, um, America sets a. I don't know. America sets a tone that I think that the world doesn't. I don't think it's good for the world. Like, I don't think it's good for what civilization, like the kind of, you guys have been talking a lot about AI and tech stuff. The thing that's happening now, right? Like what's coming up, all this progress stuff, progress stuff that we're like moving towards. I don't think America should be the one that is the thought, you know, leader for this thing, if that makes sense. So then what, what is the alternative? I, I guess, should it be a combination of the, you know, most developed countries, should we have an international body? Uh, I don't know, the UN, maybe? I don't know. Some, some kind of... Yeah. Some Congress of Nations on an international <laughs> scale. Some of nations. Yeah. That, was, that was great. Um, honestly, I, 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 I think so. I think to some degree, like, there should be more input from other cultures and other groups and what other people... Other people are doing... I'm not saying America's doing everything wrong, right? Well, there's lots of things we're doing right, um, or at least doing well, uh, but... I don't think, but they are the strongest, loudest voice. Do you remember that when, uh, I think it was 16 or 17, 2017, when Trump was like, he just, he'd been in office for less than a year and he went to that meeting. I don't know what, it was probably Paris climate accord or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he like had to shuffle his way to the front and push past all the world leaders and get up to the front. Like to me, that's America. Like that's what we do. We don't need to be <laughs> in that constant role. America should have a, a chiller person, or at least, you know, that can join the conversation and actually add something to it rather than trying to have a bullhorn that just yells at every other country that because there's there's all kinds of countries that are doing like really interesting good things with you know more modern ideas mm -hmm. and i just think that america's voice is way too loud right mm -hmm. and, and i think from a standpoint of alternative we I, I, we're, we're all generally speaking the same age i think give or take a couple of years but we, we kind of grew up in, in the late to post-Cold War era, right, where the alternative to the American model kind of vanished and fell off the international stage with a few exceptions in places like Cuba and, and, and Vietnam. But with the, the neoliberal economic order, to a certain extent, brought about a level of um, standardization to, to cultural, political, and economic models, um, at least in, in Western Europe and the United States, and to a certain extent, Eastern Europe. And if our frame of reference is like mass violence and, and global tensions, and you know we look back to the era of like World War II and World War I before that, where there was mass slaughter on, on a human scale, is the presence of kind of neoliberal uniformity, is, is that actually a terrible thing? I mean, it, are we kind of destroying the human spirit or are we preserving it to a certain extent? That's a great question. I guess I, it begs the question of like, what are we trying to do, right? Like, what, are we looking for an ideal scenario? Or are we just trying to make it better and better? Because from that standpoint, you're right, this is like the best time to live in. Like we all fuss about it and bitch about it. But honestly, there's no better. This is the most chill, most accepting, right, inclusive time you could ever possibly choose. Um, but um, 
it's, I think a good example of that is like the Catholic Church throughout the Middle Ages, right? Like the Catholic Church, you know, it, it's easy to look back and look at the Catholic Church and see it as just this like, you know, the Inquisition and all the horrible things that they did and their impediment of trying to shut down science and stuff like that. Although it's kind of funny, I was reading a thing recently when I was, I was on my honeymoon last week. And I all Congratulations. I did, like read. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I read just the non, like nonstop in a, it was amazing because it was like a very, it was an adults only, uh, all inclusive. So like there was just constant rave music. Like, <laughs> and I'm just like sitting in a pool, just like dancing back and forth with the book. Um, but I thought it was funny because there was a historian I was reading recently that talked about like the middle aged Catholic church and was saying like, yeah, everybody's like, oh, the Catholic church sucked when they were trying to like shut down Galileo and Copernicus and stuff. And, but at the same time, you kind of look at it now and you're like, but Maybe they had this attitude of like, okay, look, do you really want to pull back that curtain? Like, do you do you want to do you want this existential hell that you're actually like unleashing? Like that we're just a shitty star and this dumb thing. Maybe they had like, and so I think with the Catholic Church, we look back and we see this thing, but there is proof or or evidence that the Catholic Church did actually moralize societies. It did help take some barbarian groups that were doing pretty horrible things and make them at least a little bit better. It, it helps. Uh, they help promote shut shut down slavery. Um, things like that. So uh, the Catholic Church running things, definitely not ideal, but it did improve for the time. And I think the same probably could be said about America and some of these other like world leaders mm -hmm. are happening right now. Like they're not, they're not doing an absolute garbage job, but I don't know, aren't we always trying to go for an ideal scenario or something? Maybe not, right? No, no, we are. I mean, that, that is human nature. We are never satisfied. Um, every, everything kind of just normalizes back to that baseline. Hey, everybody. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. This is just a reminder. If you like what you're hearing, please, please subscribe to our YouTube page, like our video, leave us a lovely comment, and tell us how great Levon looks on camera. Um, and if you're feeling spicy, shoot us a tweet at radius underscore of. So let's, let's kind of um, – let's, let's circle back to this idea of you being an ungrateful socialist. Uh, <laughs> um, go ahead. T tell us a little bit about. Um, I think I think that bleeds into kind of your background with with work, your neuroscience career, your business, and then becoming a school teacher. Let's let's talk about your your background a little bit, and then we can discuss how that bleeds into these wider concepts. Sure. Um, yeah. So uh, I started. So I went to grad school. Uh, I have a degree in neuropathology, and I got a master's and was working on my doctorate in neuropath. Um, and I was studying stress specifically, like anxiety, stress, and depression, and how it affects. I, I'm kind of a biochemist in neuro, and so I was studying how it like affects the cells, like chemistry of your brain, and how it destroys it. How it really fucks it up over time. How am I able to curse a decent amount? Oh yeah, fine. Okay. Go for it. Um, uh, and so how it really like messes up your brain over time. And I had an absolute garbage time in grad school. I went there, I worked at McGill, um, and I worked with the guy that I went there to work with uh, was like world, he is world fan. I mean, you go to Barnes and Noble and find a bunch of his like stuff. Um, and I sent him a thing often, uh, like one of those like, you know, oh, this guy's never gonna answer back, whatever. Um, but he did, and he really, I sent him this really like heartfelt email talking about his whole research and how much I liked it and all these things I liked. And so he brought me there and did a whole thing. And it turns out, like, this guy was, he seemed amazing. I mean, he's, he is brilliant. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to take that away from him. But he also is never there. And he leaves you with this shitty uh, lab manager. And he has a big lab. And, and so you never get to see him. And everything else sucked. It was just terrible. I had an absolutely miserable grad school experience. Not that everybody's grad school experience is pretty garbage. But, um, and so at some point when I was working on my doctorate with it, studying stress, 
I was like, I'm really stressed. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be a smart person. And uh, this doesn't seem like the behavior that a smart person would do, like spend your whole life just constantly in anxiety. I actually had, there was, there was an epiphany moment where I was traveling and I went to Florida and um, there was a woman that you did bike tours there and she was doing bike tours and taking people around on this thing, right? And we're like biking around and she's talking about her life and her deal and this woman was just happiest, content. And she basically spent six months out of the year in Florida doing these bike tours and stuff and then uh, lived in Vermont the other six months and would like uh, find truffles and mushrooms and stuff. And, uh, and I remember at that moment, because I was such a fucking narcissist during all this stuff, I remember thinking, like, I'm at, a, I'm at a prestigious, you know, university doing this thing. This woman just bikes. What, what a weird life. And then as we went on and we were biking, this woman just kept talking. And I was like, this is one of the happiest, most satisfied human beings I've ever been around. And I was like, who's the sucker here? Like, who's the smarter person? This person's doing stuff that they genuinely get value out of. And I fucking hate my whole station so I remember having that moment and then I just came back and I was like I think I'm done with this or at least it was getting to that way so in my doctorate I started a consulting firm in behavioral analysis with some <laughs> friends um, that were doing some of that kind of stuff and basically uh, companies we worked for like iRobot um, Honeywell uh, Westinghouse um, and they would hire us because they would want to learn more about their clientele to be able to like launch products and stuff like that. Um, so my job was to do a lot of research and stats and crunch things and whatever. And, uh, and then sometimes I would go do conferences and things like that. So I was trying to like moonlight essentially as that while I was doing my doctorate. And then eventually it got to a point where I had to pick one or the other science was making me freaking miserable. And the other one was actually making money. And I was like, all right, maybe I'll go try this whole different thing. Right. <laughs> um, but one of the things that always disillusioned me and it disillusioned me in consulting as well. Um, uh, was that science was also becoming so money focused. Everything was about grants. That's all that matters. Like, and the, uh, here's the thing. I'm not trying to be some hipster science purist or whatever, you know, like science should only be this way. But the whole point of science is that it should be objective, that when mm -hmm. you're studying something, you are trying to objectively understand what the phenomenon that you're studying is. And if all you're doing is going, well, we can't study that because that's not going to get funding, right? Nobody cares about that. We have to go to this angle over here because, you know, let's see how what t the effect of TikTok on these specific cells do because they, that's how science is just like anything else that's becoming that way is money just gets involved and the only thing that gets funded is whatever is popular and people like and i remember just thinking i don't want to do science this way hmm. i don't i love science but i don't want to sit and write grants about trendy bullshit all the time and spend my life doing that um so that was another thing that really just drove me out of the field of like i just hated that money just seemed to be the only thing that really mattered if science is expensive so i get it but um and uh, so then I moved into consulting, did that for a while. I actually got hired by one of, one of the companies, Westinghouse, um, to run like a product development division that they had there um, and went back and forth to like China and, and overlooked at some of the products and stuff we were making. I did that for a while. I worked directly under the CEO and the CFO and hated it. Like I, we would go out to these expensive dinners and do, and these just, these were the worst human beings I have ever encountered. Like they're just the most superficial terrible terrible people and i know that's anecdotal i'm not trying to say the because i think that's one of the <laughs> fallacies of uh against like capitalists like when you're criticizing capitalism is that capitalism doesn't have a, it doesn't have a face everybody wants to picture some you know wall street you know guy in a suit and vest and whatever and he's there and that's that's capitalism and of course there are those people elon musk comes to mind but um they aren't responsible for capitalism it's a phenomenon 
Um, but that being said, those people, like, also, I just was around them. And I, I realized that the reason that they were so successful, because they were all millionaires, all of these people, they lived in massive houses, they drove amazing cars. Um, but they were just the most god-awful, cheating on their wives, doing all this nonsense, <laughs> terrible, terrible people. And um, I realized one of the things that made them so successful was that they just almost had this, like, uh, I don't know, like, mental disorder of, for money. Just that was the only thing that mattered. Like if you if you want to be super rich, and I'm not saying you can't be rich other ways, but if you just obsessively make everything in your life about making money, you're gonna make money, right? It's just you know that's just how. And so I felt that draw. Everybody wanted me like you gotta sell, you gotta go do stuff, go make make money, make moves, do things. And I realized I just freaking hated constantly like whoring myself out just to try and like sell products or sell our services or whatever over and over. It just made me feel meh. Um, so I got depressed with that again, right? And then, uh, so I, I quit that job, went back to consulting for a bit. And then a friend basically at a high school was like, hey, we're looking for science teachers. And I was like, I haven't done science stuff in a while, in a few years. And so I was like, yeah, I'll sub, substitute and check that out. And almost instantly loved it. Like I absolutely loved teaching. It just brought something so, I don't know, man, it just connected so many pieces. Um, and teenage assholes, right? Everybody, I remember <laughs> when I was getting into it, I didn't actually go to high school. I was homeschooled throughout my thing. Um, and I didn't, I didn't get, I didn't graduate high school till I was like 21. It was a whole deal. Um, but so I didn't actually have a high school experience. And so when I was thinking about teaching it, cause I had taught at college, everybody was like, teach uh, high schools are assholes. Like you're going to hate that. And so I tried it out and they are assholes, but they're like interesting <laughs> assholes. You know, like, they have flair. They're like passionate assholes. Um, and I've had some of the most amazing, interesting, fun conversations with them. Like, I feel like Nietzsche and Camus and Dostoevsky is literally only being read by teenagers. <laughs> Nobody else reads this stuff. And so you get to have these really cool, interesting conversations with them because they're like searching for meaning. And um, so I just remember like absolutely loving it. Uh, and so I've just, I haven't looked back from it. And so I think, um, to some degree, like I went from that, I don't know, success. Cause that's how a lot of people see it. Like that's how my family for sure sees it. I went from success to success to teacher. Um, and, uh, but to me it went from happier and happier and happier. Like it was just all about life satisfaction and I have never been happier at this job. So, so, so you're a high school teacher. Mm -hmm. science are you in the public or private school sector um so i taught public for most of my thing that i've done it when i was in texas but when i came here i came to a private school um that focuses more on like um rich kids for sure but uh like kind of fucked up rich kids if that makes sense <laughs> kids that are yeah. struggling mentally things like that we have a lot of like a big huge um thing and it's one-on-one -on -one teaching so you so, teach like, one student at a time so so two observations uh yep. about what you just said first of all um did you know Nikola Tesla was also a consultant for Westinghouse uh, back in like the late 19th, early 20th century? And really? he too got very fed up with like the corporate bullshit and left. I am going to make that a thing of my story now. <laughs> um, <I> mean... <laughs> and second, you know, what you're describing is kind of an interesting phenomena um, because so during Soviet times, um, kind of really forward thinking individuals like the creme de la creme of society that go into study advanced engineering, chemistry, the sciences as a rejection of this decaying Soviet model. And that's not a commentary, I think, on the, the, the greater philosophical 
foundations of socialism or communism, but as a rejection of the of the decay of the Soviet system in the 70s and 80s, they would refuse to go into their professions. They would instead go and teach in public schools, or all schools were public, I guess, but they'd go teach, they would become landscapers, they would become bus drivers. And in many ways, it was a search, first of all, to return to maybe what was seen as like a pure society versus what was kind of the corrupt, um, broken uh, political establishment. Um, but it was also a way to protest uh, something that otherwise was too existential to face down as a single individual, right? Kind of this maybe nihilistic acceptance that me as, as one person, I will not be able to change the system, but I will refuse to contribute to it uh, as much as I can. Do you feel like any of that is maybe a philosophical grounding to your decision to step away from that kind of life. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, like I feel like, I think one of the things I've, when we go, so my, my wife, my wife now, wife, um, she is a, uh, postdoc at Stanford in psychology and we go to, um, you know, events, conferences like HBEST that I met Levana. Um, and, uh, when we talk to people, she always has to tell me like, Hey, don't spend a lot of the time tearing down academia and trying to convince everybody <laughs> to become a teacher. But one of the thing, one of the arguments I guess that I use, cause I do think, I honestly think there's so many people that would be fulfilled that are in academia. They're searching for something and they're searching for something. I think you can actually kind of get from teaching in some capacity. Um, and that's community service. One of the things I hated about, not hated, but like I, I was disillusioning about science for me is that like I wanted to change the world. I wanted to be so significant. I wanted what I was doing to be so powerful. And I was studying like a single protein. And like, it's like, oh, hey, look, <laughs> this was amazing to us. But it's like, we thought the protein was like this, but it turns out it was like that. And it's like, <laughs> bam, change the world. And it never felt like that. You put out a paper and you're like, I hope this does something to someone somewhere. I hope someone reads this. And um, with with teaching, I have like direct students. Like I have them in front of me and I can see it feels, uh, you know, and I'm not trying to like do continue the circle jerk of teachers are the greatest. I hear that so much and it's obnoxious. But I can actually see myself changing individuals like I can we can talk about stuff and I can make them think critically more about things and I can get them to read books like they'll they'll read sometimes like the things that I recommend like random books or uh, they'll go down rabbit holes that I like send them down and stuff and the rabbit holes that like blew my mind and I'm just trying to convince them that they're going to blow theirs too. And so. I, I love the tangible aspect of community good where you feel like I'm actually like changing this person's mm -hmm. like mind. Mm -hmm. um, but then also, you know, I don't know. I, I want to be a good person in society, but then so I'm on this constant like existential back and forth of whether I just want this to fall apart and burn or if I want to actually like help with it. So mm -hmm. I guess I, I think that's a big contributor to it that I, I like. I feel at least I feel good about it. It helps me feel satisfied that I feel like I'm actually doing a pretty good thing with some of the stuff that I do, too. Did you did you have a nest egg after you quit, you know, your business and the consulting world? Not near as big of a nest egg as I should have. <laughs> I was making six figures with business stuff. Um, and but I also had a, a I had I wish it was had have a tremendous amount of student debt, too. Um, and so uh, I did have some, but I get nothing. So I'm not like I, I live off the teacher salary, basically. Like I, I'm not I'm 
pretty um i'm anti-materialist to some degree um you know i mean i still have a lot of crap right but um (laughs) i try not to spend too much or go out to eat that much not that i'm like you know villainizing anyone that does but um i live very much under my means basically Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so i definitely wasn't and am not i come from a very blue collar i'm the first person to graduate like college all for my whole family so i don't come from money at all and i don't i grew up trashy so i'm just it's it's, i live in it's like what i know i guess so I mean, there's something so uh, upsetting about that the first thing that that somebody's thought process jumps to, uh, in this country at least, when considering like a career path of a teacher is like, oh shit, like, am I going to have to like decrease my spending? Sure, yeah, like materialism is a toxic thing to a certain extent, but the fact of the matter is like the choice is like, okay, I'll go into teaching and then I'll have to budget more and, you know, think about expenses more because pay isn't that fantastic uh or you know i get to be in this awesome career path that i have a direct impact on the shaping of the minds of our country right and the fact that's an exchange where you're either going to be balling or you're going to be you know shit tier anti-materialist like teaching class so something's wrong with that and how many people do you know that have actually walked away from these sorts of like big dollar consulting gigs or, or you know owning a business to step into education very few very honestly very few and but it's that's but that's the thing is like they're staying i have so many i have lots of friends that are all still in academia and they just seem miserable i mean every time you talk to them they just are they hate their jobs um but they can't they just feel like they've gotten too far it's a sunk cost fallacy you know at some point you're just like no i've already put too much education (laughs) into this i didn't need to do that you know, I mean, it's that, I don't know, there's like a depressing thing there where I imagine if I just like all the amount of time and effort that I've put into everything I've done, if I had just like worked my way up from like McDonald's, I'd be like a district manager making like, you know, half a mil a year or something right now. Um, but so there's a sunk cost fallacy, I think, that a lot of them just can't get past a certain thing with it. Although I will say, I will say, all right, so it depends on where you go and what you, where, like who you teach with or whatever, right? But it's a manageable salary, right? It's not like... It's not slave labor, right? Yeah, you're not gonna, you know, I don't know. I ride a bike into work every day, right? I have a car. It's fine. It's a fine whatever. I just bought it a few years ago. It's fine. But like, I don't, I don't care about a lot of that stuff. Like, it doesn't matter to me. I don't need a Tesla or a BMW. Um, and so, I think if you can just move past feeling like some of that stuff, right? Um, I don't. I, I think it's a manageable lifestyle. I think other people just don't want to i think they want that other thing and they're convinced that that other thing is going to be the thing that actually makes them happy versus i don't know going into work and not wanting to drive your bmw off a bridge going into work no that's a that's a fair point but you know some people that you know they want to live different lifestyles they want to have a bigger family you know uh do you think you know working as a teacher under those circumstances could produce more stress than you know what you're experiencing right now um that's a fair observation i have no kids (laughs) that that in itself is like what 30 percent off my you know deal but at the same time i imagine uh, it's also the kind of example you're choosing to set for i guess like these like hypothetical nobody here has children so we're gonna we're gonna hypothesize like the the hypothetical child but um so many families, you know, stay in those like, big earning career paths and, and they stay, you know, part of the, the hustle grind culture and whatnot, but their children are still miserable, right? And they might provide more money, but you're not really setting any sort of example for your child. And you're not setting any sort of like moral or philosophical foundation for them by which they can grow up to be good people, which I imagine is what you're trying to do if you're a parent. 
And I, I'd almost think that having a kid and showing the kid that, look, you don't have to be trapped by the, the sort of economic model that we, we've imparted onto our country. You don't have to be limited to, you're either a high earning consultant or executive or you're a complete failure because you're teaching. Like, it, it, I think there can be nothing better you do for a child than breaking that dichotomy. And, and if it's going to be a little bit harder financially, maybe it's worth it. There was a metric I created, like I thought of like a thought experiment a long time ago that really helped put my, when I was in grad school, I came up with a lot of thought experiments just to, sure. uh, to shut the voices <laughs> off. For just a bit. And one of them was, if you die, right, and you like got to access like a giant super, like a Dexter's Laboratory giant supercomputer that could just tell you all kinds of data about your life, right? After you look up all the stupid, weird, you know, how many times did I masturbate? After you look up all the weird shit. Um, I think a really interesting question to ask it um, would be, how much time did I spend doing things I didn't like doing, right? Um, and I think that's an interesting metric because, like, you could be a CEO or a famous celebrity or something and spend a shit ton of time, way more time, doing stuff you hate, being in boardrooms around obnoxious people, people you hate, you don't want to be around them. And versus being a, a, I don't know, a peasant farmer in rural Indonesia or something and have a way, way better time. It's where there's, a, there's a reason why a lot of those happiness index, quality of life or whatever happiness index that are often what Costa Rica and Bhutan. Yeah. 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 And it's because I think it's because they've learned to make do with what they have. They don't have, um, you know, access to all the crap that we do. And so they're not fumbling for it. I, I had an argument, not an argument, but like a discussion um, recently with someone over uh like i was saying that like i i wasn't saying and this will probably be great from y'all's position of like the soviet socialist like um but like that in some capacity it must have been maybe it could have been more fulfilling in some ways to be like a feudalist peasant in the past because in some capacity they didn't fumble for meaning their lives were hard i'm not trying to pretend that they had great chill lives like they spent their <laughs> lives working but their lives were like satisfyingly where they they churned butter and then they ate that butter later and there's something about like not wa wondering like your great grandfather was a farmer your grandfather your dad you don't question your th you're going to be a farmer your kid's going to be a farmer um and so you just live your life in a moment right and I feel like there's something that we've lost now. Actually, there uh, at the turn of the century in the Industrial Revolution, like late 19th century, there's a, a sociologist, uh, Emil Durkheim, wrote a book called Suicide, where he um, first connected stat stats to uh, uh, industrial, like the increases of industrialization around Europe. Mm -hmm. um, he found that the the more industrialized an area was, the higher suicide rates went. And it was weird because the question was is like. It almost seemed like a paradox at the time. It's like, well, they've got access to so much more stuff. Like you can have access to jobs and restaurants and, and lifestyles and people that you've never had before, right? Versus being a farm person. And then he came up with a whole, he wrote a whole book about why. And he came up with all these lists of reasons, but a lot of it is that you lose meaning. Like you go there and you have no idea what you should be anymore. And you're just suddenly like here and all these options are in front of you and like, they're so daunting to try and like find what like the game feels so much more complex at that. And so now you're like, they're trying to, what is that job? What is, is this person? Would that be per person be better over there? And we've obviously now at this meta stage that we're at, right? Like everything feels well. I think there's a, a book called paradox of choice by Barry Schwartz. Um, and he talks about like decision anxiety where he talks about, um, Mm -hmm. How when you go to the store and you want to, I, mm, I want Oreos and you go to the store and then there's like 
94 different types of Oreos. And then you sit there and you're like, oh, I guess I should make an Excel sheet for figuring <laughs> out which Oreos I want. And he's like, over time, that just that's making us nuts, right? And so I think that's the early version of what Durkheim had, had encountered was like that we got this loss of purpose from moving into this more complex, more, I'll keep it on brand, capitalist-centered, you know, industrial environment um, that I think just makes it where it has this illusion that everything is great, that you have access to all this stuff, but you don't, it's not fulfilling, you know? Hey everybody, if you are enjoying the show, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button, uh, like, and also comment. And I think we have a Twitter page. Andre, can you chime in on that? It's radius underscore of. Mm, yes, right. Back to the show. Do you think the issue is that under capitalism, our most core evolutionary predispositions are amplified and hijacked. You know, our, our desire to seek status and resources. Um, it's kind of, yeah, I mean, uh, hijacked by, by the system. And so I think that's the issue that a lot of people are struggling with is they have these desires, these very innate desires, which are not built to maximize their well-being, right? They're built to maximize their reproduction. So how do you how do you overcome that? Are you are you suggesting that you know through socialism, there's a better there's a better way? Um, uh, I mean, okay, so I mean, yes, I I absolutely think I think that's in the entire basis of capitalism. I mean, the basis of capitalism is to exploit workers, whatever, da da da, you know, make money off of it. <laughs> But I think one of the basis of capitalism, um, there's a great book by a French author, uh, Guy Debord, um, where he wrote about basically like how um, we went from uh, this thing, and he wrote this in the 60s, and it's so insanely, like he didn't know anything about social media, and it's weird because it makes <laughs> so much more sense in social media context. Um, but he basically said that um, we went from like our needs being these things where, like basically we live in a society where our needs are completely taken care of. If, if, you, if you live in a Western whatever thing, like you don't need, you clean water, food, whatever. Um, so then you just keep moving the bar of needs, like a hierarchy kind of thing, right? Of what do I need? You move into these stages. And he said we went from what did he call it like um, we went from like uh, needing to uh, appearing to like the social media aspect of this is like the like we don't even like it's not that you are trying to like you don't buy a car because it's functional like in the '60s you bought a car like a nicer car because you wanted to look cool to your neighbors right and now mm -hmm. we've moved to the point where it's not even about that anymore. Like you pretend to buy a car, you pretend to have a car mm -hmm. and put it up on social media. So you look like this badass. And it's like, I think capitalism continues to do this thing with us. That's like a virus in our brain. It, 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 it pins points off of our, like, you know, reward, whatever motivational thing that we have. And it just keeps making you feel like there's the new need, right? Like there's no, you need, you need to feel your, your, are you unhappy? Right. Cause they help keep that. It's when we get into the weeds of actual socialism, I'm mostly the main thing I want from socialists is socialized medicine. And I, cause I think, uh, capitalist medicine, I think it's inherently evil. And I think uh, that, um, socialized medicine is like, um, <laughs> sorry. Oh God. I lost my thought. I, I like to listen to y'all's thing too, because every now and you guys would do it, and I'm like, okay, that's cool, because I feel like you're gonna ramble about something. Um, socialized uh, yeah. medicine. Socialized medicine. Uh, the reason I think it's capitalism shouldn't 
basically it shouldn't commodify everything. Does that make sense? And that's what capitalist's whole deal. Everything's a commodity in capitalism. Every single, your life is a commodity in capitalism. And so your health is a commodity. And like, there's certain things I don't have a problem with in capitalism. Like if you want an iPhone and you can't afford one, okay, save up, right? Get a shitty phone, be, you're fine. You're not going to die from not having a phone. But if you literally would die because you can't get insulin because it's too expensive, because you can't afford it because you live in America, that to me is evil. We live in a time period where we could totally give everyone insulin that needs it. And we're like, no. Is it, is it evil or is it is it just a reflection of, of nature to a certain extent? I mean, like if we see a lion chase down a gazelle and slaughter it, we don't point to the lion and say, hey, you know, it's, it's a fucking expression of evil. No, I mean, it, it's a lion doing what a lion is set to do by its natural impulses. Just like if capitalism is an expression of human nature to a certain extent or a part of human nature, it's just a system that is going along the rules that it has. Um, sure. If you, if you can commoditize something, you will do it. Now, do you, so do you feel the solution is greater regulation of the, the market or is the solution the complete destruction of the market and starting over from scratch. Like, I mean, you, you, you commented that there are some obvious elements of capitalism you might agree with, and I share those thoughts with you too, right? I mean, the iPhone example is great, and there, there's countless others we can think of. But at this point, are we too far gone in how we've evolved from an economic standpoint to actually reform anything? It's just going to get in its own way? Or can we still gradually chip away at it and kind of redirect the battleship, so to speak? Sure. That's a great question. Um, okay. So on the first, the first part that you said real quick, um, I do think it's natural. I think it's natural, but there's like an evolutionary fallacy where just because something's natural, it's like the, you know, like Jordan Peterson and the lobsters. <laughs> oh, lobsters. Right? Yeah. lobsters. Um, yeah. He, just because something is natural, right? but the humans are defy everything we do defies nature. That's our whole deal is to defy nature. And so the thing that we've created doesn't they, like, it's not a natural context. Right. So I think that, it's hard to put that in context of that kind of natural thing. Sure, it, it definitely is a natural thing. I mean, so is to murder people, right? Like, I mean, that's a, when you look back at like uh, throughout history, I mean, it was not uh, uncommon for people to just constantly murder all the time. And we're trying to move towards not doing that as much, right? Um, so I do agree. And I, I think it, I think that's one of the problems with capitalism is it really does take advantage of like who we are naturally. And it like, it, it makes us feel this thing that we feel like we have to be a part of. That being said on your other thing, do we just do we need to dismantle the system um no i don't think that's the way to go with it uh revolutions are rarely successful right they're they're just bloody and they're usually terrible and a, a worse system or maybe marginally better system replaces it so if you have a functional system which we do i'm not trying to pretend i'm not a dramatic when it comes to like when i'm i say i'm a socialist i'm not like a Ooh, you know anarchist let's burn it all down like i just want to see the country move in a direction towards more um, where basically, because social, there's not great terms for these, especially with socialism and communism and all that stuff. They just become such buzzwords for right. so different things. Um, to me, I want us to prioritize certain parts of our society as more important than a value system, like of a commodity, right? Like health or education. I think there's just yeah. certain things that we should like make that should be more important than making money off of it. So I want to I want to circle back to the point you made about the healthcare system and how you would prefer to socialize medicine, or at least that's one of the you know components of society that you would socialize. Do you think there is a, a bit of an issue with um, like reaping the benefits of capitalistic you know innovation and progress that's happened at a, a technological front in medicine 
um, versus like socializing it and not having that benefit. I mean, I guess there's trade-offs is what I'm trying to get at. And how do you, I guess, how do you justify that trade-off? Like, how do you make a value judgment to say, well, it's it, this is better than the other? Or can we have both? Is that a false dichotomy? Um, I actually do think you can have both. Like, I lived in Canada for a while. And Canada, again, I'm not trying to, like, make, I know a lot of people do that. Like, Canada's system has its own flaws and issues, too. Um, but... Uh, there are also private clinics. If you're, here's the thing. Okay, look, at the end of the day, I don't think we're ever gonna create a system where if you're rich and successful, you're not gonna get better things than other people. I'm not trying to pretend that that's what, <laughs> I'm not a communist. I don't think that's, I, and I wouldn't like that. I really wouldn't. I work really hard for a lot of the things that I do and I, I, I want the efforts of getting those things. I would be so frustrated if I just got the same thing as every single person, despite however much effort or time I put into something. That being said though, rich people always get the thing. and. There are private clinics in Canada for rich people that they can go and they don't have to wait and they get great service and whatever. So I do think you can trade it off. I think the problem inherently is that in a capitalist, like if we're using the, the healthcare model, in a capitalist system, you it's about, it's about incentive, right? And in um, a healthcare system that's all about money, where it's, the profit is really like a company that's a healthcare company that's job is to make, they're a private, I mean, a, a public company or whatever, and they have shareholders. Their job is to make money. It is not to do ethical things or whatever it is to increase profits year by year so that their shareholders continue to buy in and, and don't sell. Um, and so in a, uh, a capitalist healthcare system, the incentive is literally money over people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so if you can make profit off of increasing money for people that need insulin or need an EpiPen or whatever, then you should do that. Like you should increase that thing. That's how capitalism works. I'm, I'm not like, I don't try to pretend that like capitalism is some weird, like, like it, it is what it is. It's a very high functioning system. It, it's very successful at what it does. I just don't think that certain sectors should be part of that. Like if you look at comparison, a great comparison is the Cuban healthcare system. Mm -hmm. The Cuban yep. healthcare system has very similar metrics to ours, right? In fact, in some things, there are some things that we have like uh, infant mortality. We have lower infant mortality rates than Cuba does. I think maternal mortality, we're like on par with Burkina Faso. Like no shade to yeah. Burkina Faso. Like, but, <laughs> but I mean... Yeah, like exactly. And so when you look at like some of those metrics of those places like Cuba and stuff, um, you, you see this thing and you're like, well, why? Why, why wouldn't we, we obviously have the best medicine in the whole world. Why, why aren't our metrics, why aren't way better? And it's because there's no incentive for a health group or whatever to really want you to be healthy. Like you're a consumer. They don't like, and I'm not trying to do some whole conspiracy thing like they know the cure for cancer and they're not releasing it or something. I'm just saying they aren't inherently incentivized to find cures for things more than they are a drug that you'll take for the rest mm -hmm. of your life. Um, mm -hmm. It's like a chiropractor, you know, kind of oh, like dude. that. And then when you look at when you look at Cuba, one of the reasons that they have really interest, like they actually have pretty high health standards. They actually, uh, at least this was the stat ten years ago when I did a paper on this. Um, they had the uh, per capita most doctors in the whole world. They had so many doctors that they like farmed them out to other Latin American yeah. countries and stuff. Um, and that flies in the face of people like, well, if you if they don't get paid because they didn't get paid, they got paid the same as a plumber did. And they were like, well, if you don't pay your doctors, they won't be a doctor. And it's like they they obviously still do in other places. But that being said, Cuba. Uh, when I looked into it, Cuba, one of the reasons that they had pretty decent health metrics is because they didn't have the health equipment that we had. They didn't have all the machines and the drugs access specifically because we've embargoed them. Um, they don't have access to that. So their whole medical system was centered around prevention. It's like, look, if you get 
if you get hella sick, right? We, you might die. We might not be able to fix you. So <laughs> maybe work on trying not to be sick. And so a lot of their stuff was so preventative based on better diets, better nutrition, better lifestyles. And I don't think there's an incentive for America to try and get people to do that. It's why we have an obesity epidemic in America. Because there's no incentive necessarily for companies and doctors and stuff. And again, I'm not trying to create a whole conspiracy. Well, it's but not, there's yeah. no incentive for them to necessarily be like, don't come back to me. I don't want to see you anymore. I want you to be healthy and go live this life and never come back to me again. And, and I think uh, the, the Cuban example is really fascinating too, because d despite the embargo that's been in place since 59, or actually after Bay of Pigs, I guess, but despite the embargo, despite uh, complete lack of, of um, capacity to import medical equipment, Cuba was still in the forefronts of generating their own COVID vaccine and distributing the vaccine to its population. Like they had no problems with that. And I think that really speaks volumes to the ingenuity of their healthcare system and the capacity of their healthcare system to function in a highly effective format, despite facing like some crazy obstacles on the international stage. Um, which, I mean, again, what could we do with ours, right? If we had all of the resources and the intellectual capital and, and the technology that the United States healthcare market has, I mean, possibilities Social. are really endless. Socialism. <laughs> it really, to me, again, I, I don't want to keep making it like, I know the socialism thing, it's, it's more of an incentive thing, I think, right? It's yeah. just, I think we all have this mindset that we actually want people that we want better things for society. Everybody always brings up like Sweden and Norway and all those like countries that are doing that. And I think one of the things that those countries are doing right, right? We, we talked at the very beginning of like, could somebody be doing this better than America mm -hmm. as a superpower or whatever? I don't inherently think Sweden or Finland or whatever would be a better superpower. But some of the things you could borrow from them or New Zealand or whatever um, is that they just tend to have certain things in their in their sector of society where they're like, we're going to lose money on this. That's it. That's it. That's all there is. We're going to lose money on this because we consider this to be more important. It, it, it increases the quality of life of our citizens, and we think it's good for them to have this, and we are not going to make this a monetized, commoditized, commodified thing. And I think that's something that America just – everything is for sale in America. Ev everything. Yeah. Yeah. We um, – we have a society that is over-optimized for profit. Um, but I, I, I want to push back against your position a little bit by asking you to kind of steel man like the, the posing argument for like what the downsides of moving to a more socialized society, um, a socialistic society would be. Like what, what do you think are, are going to be the trade-offs there? Um, well, historically, <laughs> uh, historically, it would mean that we would all work on farms. All everything we're doing right now, we would all just move to farms. <laughs> um, so that would suck. Um, but uh, realistically, in a system like that, like, what would be the downsides? So, I mean, it's going to reduce creativity and innovation for sure. That's one of the critiques, and I think it's a genuine critique, right? Um, letting laissez-faire capitalism run wild creates crazy, insane stuff, right? It does. It creates massive markets of, uh, you know, music and movies and video games and all kinds of cool gadgets and things that we all do enjoy. And so I think a lot of that would, it's one of the reasons America is like the main leader of all that, making all that stuff. Um, and I think capitalism really like allows that uh, to happen. Um, so you're, there would be a decrease in that kind of stuff. Um, and that would be a bummer, right? But it's like, I don't know, it's that trade-off of like, I don't know, what what do you want out of this, right? Like, what do you what, what what's your trade-off? What are you willing to trade off, right? Um, uh, other things, I guess, like, um, the bureaucracy is a nightmare. I mean, it's funny, like, I have friends that are like libertarians, right? 
Um, friends. After, after the whole Trump and COVID stuff, I part Do to, libertarians have friends? friends. Yeah, exactly. That's a great. And see, it's funny because, like, in some capacity, right? Like, we want, the, or I don't, I don't care. They want dumb. They're just conservative. They're closeted conservatives. But at, at the end of the day, like, I think what they're trying to say is the same thing like I would say too. Like I don't inherit, I'm not, I don't love the government, right? Like when it's, when you talk about being a socialist, they act like I just, oh my God, I want government everywhere. I just, can there be more government in my house right now? I don't want the government around me. I don't care. I don't like the government. The government's a nightmare. That being said though, the alternative like libertarianism, no government or whatever, um, is that there's never going to be a govern the no governing force, right? So if you get rid of the government, then corporate things are government, right? That's just going to be a thing. They're going to rich. They have all the money. They're going to do whatever they want. And so I like the idea of the trade-off of having a stronger government that is trying to work towards some kind of common good that is able to temper. That's the thing too with, with capitalism. I don't inherently think it's the company's fault. Like I don't like Elon Musk. He's a douchebag, but if he's not responsible <laughs> for, he's just, Play, gaming the system, right? Like he's there. He's like, if you play a video game, you know, like he's, like, he's just a button mashing piece of shit that figured out some strategy. He's killing everyone else, but he's just, you know, he's a douchebag, but he's not responsible for capitalism, right? It's, we need more checks and balances and things that are overseeing this that will help make it something less evil, I think. So I, I don't want like this huge revolution thing for it, right? I think there's definitely going to be trade-offs and and I, I also just want to have a discussion, if that makes sense, too. I call myself a socialist. And, like, obviously, I talked to you about it, you know, in one of the <laughs> few conversations we had. So I obviously promote it. But at the same time, like, do I think socialism is, like, the thing? No. I, I have no idea. But I want to, I just want to talk about it, right? Like, we can't even talk about it in America because there's just this villainization of this thing. It's yeah. like, as soon as you... Right. And so I don't like, do I think it'll have everything? No, absolutely not. Right. Capitalism has a lot of really cool, good aspects to it. I just want a wider conversation, you know, the Overton window to uh, this. Do you, do you feel like maybe, I mean, you, you described um, some, some of the shortcomings in your steel man that, okay, maybe introducing more of like a socialized model would, would put limitations on the things that are inherently good about capitalism. Do you ever have a sense that maybe we've moved away from that stage of the capitalist model where we're moving away from a time period where there was like rapid, fantastic innovation and solutions to you know our problems, uh, massive booms and creativity and entertainment? Because it almost seems like lately we had to have like really shitty, bland ass like replicas of the Uber model for tech as like the next great form of innovation. Uh, from like a cultural standpoint, we're not really producing phenomenal pieces of art. Um, I'm talking about the cinema, music, uh, literature. There are still good things coming out here and there, but it seems like the top, like the era of max American creative output really can't be matched, right? We're not really producing Faulkner's or Hemingway's, and you know we're not. I guess we still have David Lynch, but but. So, so, I mean, you get what I'm saying, right? Do, do you feel like maybe this stage of capitalism is now actually more oppressive towards any form of human output and human ingenuity than it was in the past where maybe it succeeded in releasing some of it to a certain extent? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I, think, I think Voltaire had a quote where he says, like, the, uh, the, the decline of an empire or something is the sound of wooden shoes coming upstairs and the silk slivers oh, slippers moving down, right? <laughs> The idea is like civilizations in decline get too soft, right? Eventually they just like, like I'm, this is actually more in like a, I don't know, like 
barbaric, like a, a warlike kind of thing in, in a certain aspects, right? But I think it could be applied to the creative aspect of like when you stop, like, I don't know, have you ever like had a, 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 an artist or a band that you really, really liked and you liked mm -hmm. their first like two albums, three albums maybe, and then as soon as they just started getting really rich and famous, like it just didn't make any more sense. They couldn't, they couldn't make mm -hmm. that work anymore. And it's because like they're doing a whole different thing. They're living a whole different life. So you sitting and singing to me about being poor in a diner at 2 a.m. or something, I'm like, <laughs> you're not. That's not, you don't do this anymore. And so... Uh, it's, they lose something in that. And I think in some ways our society is doing that too, right? We're getting kind of fat and bloated and like, so at some point, like none of us, like, cause they'll put out shitty content on streaming services and every bitch is about it, right? Everybody still <laughs> fucking watches it. No one doesn't watch all the shitty Marvel thing. They, like they ever, I, like lately they, they were really, I've seen so many comments lately about like Marvel and how trash it is lately, but everyone, it's still one of the most popular watched things. And so it's like, stop <laughs> watching it and then they'll stop making it. But people don't do it. They're just like, this I just, I don't know. We, so I think once you've, your society's made it to that point where it just, it doesn't matter anymore. It's why we're not like gonna, I don't see a revolution ever really happening either. Like a civil war or something like that. Cause we just, we're too comfortable, right? Maybe we don't like, we all have a sense that sometimes we don't like a lot of this stuff. We're like, I don't think I'm comfortable, with but you're, you're just comfortable enough where you're like, well, I'm not going to go take a day off work about it. <laughs> like, I'm not going to go yell at someone in the streets. So I think, uh, I think we are probably losing some of that edge that comes with, I don't know, being a garage band, being a starving artist, right? Those kind of people that like did it for the music, right? It's one of the reasons that like the sixties and seventies are like the golden age of a lot of other stuff. And we have not improved on that. And, and honestly, that's a great example because the music industry is just capitalist <laughs> bullshit. Like when you look at like, Justin Bieber and all these people like their, their music are written by like nine people in a boardroom. And then they like, you're going to wear this hat and you're going to dance like this and you're going to do this thing because, and then they literally like, there's like a, a four chord progression that like is like 75% of all pop songs. And it's because it's, it's, it's like a virus. It just, you want to sing it and it gets stuck in your head. And, um, and it's that we've made music where it's like a viral thing, right? You hear a song and you want to hear it 5,000 times. Uh, for a week and then you never want to hear that shitty song ever again and so we've made things like that right whereas like led zeppelin was making music just or pink floyd or whatever just making music to make music and then they just loved this thing and it just turned out they made an amazing thing that has stood the test of time so i don't Dude, know i think i think that's it right go sorry go ahead yeah i was gonna say i mean this seems like maybe it's due to all the you know the concentration of wealth the monopolies that have formed in all these different industries it kind of stifles the innovation uh, and then you you know you're reaping less reward from this capitalistic system, uh, despite having all the downsides amplified. Um, but uh, you know I feel like this push and pull nature of like the economy, like between the haves and the have-nots, like this is like cyclical, right? And this happens under any sort of economic system, like even even under socialism. Um, there's actually a really good quote. I was reading um, a book from one of the authors you had recommended, Will Durant. Um, and it goes, it goes like this. So this is from the book Lessons of History. The concentration of wealth is natural and inevitable and is periodically alleviated by violent or peaceable partial redistribution. In this view, all economic history is a slow heartbeat of the social organism, a vast systole and diastole of concentrating wealth and compulsive circulation so even i mean thinking about what would happen you know in a more socialistic system it's it's power getting more and more centralized there's more and more corruption so 
to me, it seems like it's almost no matter what system we have, eventually it tends towards kind of a similar fate. But one of those systems um, gives you gives you healthcare. Oh, so, yeah. That is true. That's a, that's a fair point. But but is there any way that you guys, you know, I'm asking both of you, is there any way we could build this into governmental systems so that we have almost a, a kind of feature of a revolt? Not It's not a bug where the systems failed, so we have to revolt, but it's a feature where we get to kind of um, reset things. Is that possible? What would that look like? Andre, do you I, wanna... I think so much Larry, is done um, or has been done out of a fear of what the, the population of a, of a country could inflict in terms of consequences. I mean, Brock, like when I asked you at the start of our conversation, like, hey, you know, could you ever imagine an era where like the United States is getting it right? I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think maybe the New Deal era was the closest we got to any form of like harmony in our between our economic classes but a lot of that as i've been reading about it was done because everybody was just scared to shit of the soviet union and everybody was really terrified of like bolshevism of, of kicking off in the united states and i think as long as there was a healthy fear of what the masses would do in reaction to a policy or or, or business decision things were kind of kept in an informal state of checks and balances but i think with the Reagan era and the complete gutting of unions in the 80s and 90s and just a maybe a general alienation of our population from one another as we you know started working more our health insurance was attached to our jobs and fucking the internet came out and our well you know masturbating and, and and watching tiktok videos nobody's really hitting the streets anymore right i mean george floyd i think was such like a shocker to, to this country because it's like the first time in a while that people are out like you know burning cars and shit so i think that as long as that sort of relationship has existed, there's always been maybe a, a, a control mechanism over how policy was written or how business decisions were made. But I think we're totally past that now. There's nothing left to sort of rear in uh, the, the impulses of, of our current economic model. Yeah, no, I mean, I, mean, I think like, first of all, let me say like, it made my nipples hard when you like talk about Will Durant. <laughs> I love, I've been so obsessed with that guy and partly because what if, like what kind of what you said he just looks at everything with such a nuance and it's just beautiful to look at history and be like nothing's ever all shit or all bad or all great um and uh but uh I think the one of the biggest problems I have with like the capitalist model or whatever is excess it's such an excessive system and like I I I like is there a way for us to it's it's tough right it's extremely complex because i don't honestly think there's like a group of an illuminati you know that's out there running capitalism it's in all of us it's i'm in it i am in i am steeped in capitalism i'm not trying to pretend that i'm like some paragon of values and and stuff like that like i try to do better things when i can and be less materialistic and i promote certain values or whatever i vote for people i you know put i give money to campaigns or whatever but overall i'm not i'm still doing this thing and i think that's a thing all of us are doing it capitalism offers it's like offering a giant spread of delicious buffet food in front of you and then you just like no i'm gonna eat my shitty crackers that I have over here because I know at the end of the day they're more sa they're more satisfying for me and all of us. But that's also the thing. Actually, a good example of this, and I will say my fervor for like anti-capital stuff changed a lot when I came to California because California uh, has a lot of rich people 
and they're better rich people. Like, <laughs> Texas had sh shitty rich people. The rich people here are better. They're still they're still shitty too. They still have a lot of shitty things, but they also do like better things. They just tend to be more focused on trying a more community good type of thing. And I I, I think one of the problems I always had with it was that just like when you when you incentivize everything as money or whatever, it just like people can't stop eating the food, right? They can't do anything. And so then you're the, if you do it, if you're the one that eats the crackers or the salad or whatever the fuck and you don't eat, you don't partake with all the others, then you're the sap. You're the sucker that's not doing the thing and you just have a shitty, you know, existence in the capitalist world while everybody else is just, it's a, not, not prisoner's dilemma. It's a, there's another thing for it, like competitive, whatever thing for it. Right. But you need everybody else to do it too. We all need to go, oh, okay, let's chill out a little bit. Let's take this down. And we just can't, none of us can do it. Um, and I think capitalism feeds off of this, like, I don't know what comes first, like the technology thing that we're doing or capitalism or whatever, but they are synergizing. I feel like the tech thing we got on, it's like a train that we got on, you know, in the industrial league in the 19th century. And we were all like, oh, cool. Like literally a train. <laughs> and we're like, this is going into the future. I'm like, Prog we're pro this is progress. And we're all getting in there. And it's going pretty slowly. And we're all like, oh, this is cool. I hope this, this is probably going somewhere, you know. And then now we're on this like bullet train that is just ripping through time and all of us are, are just uncomfortably looking around doing all the things on this progress tech train and we just hope that it's going somewhere good but we all kind of have this underlying feeling that's not right that phones are making us nuts and social media is terrible and all this stuff is unfulfilling and we don't like it right and i think that capitalism loves that it loves for us to feel that way because when you feel that way capitalism's like i can sell you some snake oil that's going to totally make you feel better for 10 minutes and then you're going to feel like that again and so, yeah, I, I, I want a structural thing. So your ultimate question, though, was, is it, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm starting, like, I want to believe so. And I feel like if you can, I want things to be localized, right? I think, to me, a lot of this is a, uh, a problem mm -hmm. of scale, right? Uh, what was it? Marjorie Taylor Greene recently talked about a national divorce, right? Um, and honestly, I've been kind of talking about that for a while. Because I know that's anti-American. <laughs> to go back to that, why do I hate America kind of thing at the beginning, like, I think that America, when America was, the constitution was written, right? The population of America was under 3 million people. And when you look at the context of a, the constitution and all the things they talked about, it makes so much more sense with 3 million people, 3 million agricultural, mostly farmer people. When you get to 300 plus million people, it's falling apart. Like it's not a bad system. It's not. I, I love the founding fathers. I think the, our government is actually a great governmental system. But it's not, it doesn't make, the scope of it is too big. And like, try imagining California and Vermont being able to get a consensus with Alabama is absurd. It's just an absurd thing. It's like having two completely different ideologies. And so we never get anything. We never get any, no one ever gets what they want because we always try to meet and no one can ever meet. And so I, in some ways, I think, uh, you know, making regions or whatever, having this be less a smaller localized thing could practically become a more... I don't know, manageable hmm. system like that. Interesting. So do, do you find that oh, the, well the political divides hmm. are as such between, again, the metaphorical California, metaphorical Alabama, that we have less in common with one another now at this point that we would never be able to maybe figure something out or make something work, right? As in, are there more things dividing us as an American polity now that once maybe we were able to navigate a bit better? If you put them in a room and you make mm. them talk, no, no, I don't think so. I think group-wise mentality, tribalism things, yeah, I think I think we're moving to a point where it just seems like it's hard to imagine 
the the two spectrums that have developed, it's hard to imagine them somehow finding, you know, like because uh, they're not there's no one's trying, no one wants to find a thing, right? Like no one's like I want to find a middle ground with those weird rednecks and these you know blue haired whatever woke people. Like <laughs> no one's trying to bring that together. And so I think if you put them in a room together, like I grew up in the South, I grew up with blur, you know blue collar, dirt poor, not dirt poor, but like you know lower class whatever family. And they're a lot of my family's racist. They're young earth creationists, whatever. So I've grown up around all this kind of thing. I was Southern Baptist forever. And idealistically, the way they vote, if you ask them about a bunch of their views, they seem like shitty people. But when you actually sit down with them, they're not shitty people. They're, they're, they genuinely are pretty good people. They'll give money to homeless people. My grandfather, who is, uh, you know... But he's taken homeless people home and fed them before and stuff. He did it out of Christian charity, but like it still did it. I've never taken a homeless yeah. person home before. Um, and so, so there's certain things with it. Like I think if you could put them in a room, right? I think that they would be fine. But how we could metaphorically put all those people's ideas and cultures and stuff in a room and let them sort it out, I just don't imagine how right. that's ever going to happen. Like I don't know how imagine how Alabama and California are ever going to see eye to die anymore. It's one of the reasons I wanted to get out of Texas, man. I was just so tired of making excuses. <laughs> like, no, it's gonna next next year. No, I'm done. I don't need to stay in this place anymore. No, I mean you're you're spot on though, saying it was a you know it's a problem of scale, but then it's it's also exacerbated by the technological you know progress that we've made, and that's that's rapidly just evolving in a way that's uncontrollable. Um, oh, wait, I have a, I have a resolution actually. I have a good resolution for this. Do I think it's actually manageable that we could get this going? I do actually. And this is going to sound so hokey and stuff, but it brings it back to my deal. My students actually give me hope. My students are good people. There are a lot of them. Mm. These, these newer students. Yeah. Gen Zers are kind of idiots. They, they do well, really Millennials are kind of fucked up I too. Can't... But like, yeah. 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 No, it's not, let's not like try to like, you know, um, high road this, but. Um, they're weird, and I don't understand the humor <laughs> half the time. But at the end of the day, they are extremely like inclusive groups, and not like obnoxious. Like they actually care about each other. Um, like the only time they are so chill with each other, they never fight or anything. The only time I ever honestly see them like genuinely get like kind of angry with each other and stuff is when someone says something shitty to someone else. You know, like when someone says something out of line and other people will be like, hey, that's shitty. To what? You don't have to say something shitty like that. And like when I watch them and I interact with them, I think, okay, this is, I really think it's a culture thing. I think, first of all, boomers just need to die. I'm sorry. I know I'm saying that on some kind of record <laughs> thing of what that's going out there, but we need boomers to die because um, boomers suck. Let's just, let's just, uh, like every one of them, no, they don't all suck, right? I again, individually, and if I was in a room with each one of them, I'm sure they're fine. But as a culture, they're just trash. They got everything and then they just hoarded it like dragons. They need to die. And then millennials will come in and we're doing better, right? We have a bit of better Gen, Gen X and millennials. We're coming in. But I'm hoping, honestly, that Gen Zs just... Because the difference is, is like, millennials, we, like... I don't know. We, we like, laid down on this. Like, we wanted this to be, like, no, I want to fight this. I want gay people to be able to get married. And I want Gen Zs, they've just internalized it. They've normalized it. They don't care. Like, the idea that gay people couldn't get married isn't a discussion for them. That's not like, oh, is that controversial? Most of them are like, what? Why wouldn't gay people get married? And I, the fact that they're starting to normalize that gives me hope that they're going to take that into society if they ever get it, if boomers ever die. 
and that they're going to come in and they're going to actually like normalize that with their ethics and their because I really think it's a it's a it's a it's a whole population thing. I don't think it's specifically like a there needs to be this one law. If we could get rid of Citizens yeah. United, that would help a yeah. lot. But um, but I don't think there's like one law that's going to fix this. I think it's really a mentality that we all need to change. And I I do see some of that with my students, and I do have it's brought me hope. I guess that's the teacher answer. <laughs> Well, the first step would be uh, escaping the rat race, so you have time to actually think about these issues. Um, yeah. I heard a I heard a great quote recently: um, "Is if you win the rat race, you're still a rat." So. <laughs> uh, one of my favorites but, is uh, uh, John Steinbeck said, um, "America, the reason socialism never caught on America is because instead of seeing themselves as disenfranchised, like abused, whatever proletariat, they all the believe they're uh, temporarily yeah. embarrassed." <laughs> Right. Yeah. 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 I think that's just such a great like that is that is it. That's how my family. Exactly. They will shoot themselves in the foot buy a ninety thousand dollar car that they can't afford mm. just because the someday I'd, I'd be cut. But speak. OK, so speaking if speaking of the rat race, um, I want to circle back to, you know, your escape from the rat race. If so, you know, if someone's out there, some of the listeners here, um, if they're thinking about quitting their corporate job or finding something more fulfilling, what will you tell them? And like, what are some of the you know, struggles that you had? What are the questions and the anxiety that you had dealing with this issue? Um, so I think one of the things I said to you when we were talking that led to you like wanting to talk about this was, um, and I've used this, this like, uh, it's not an analogy, whatever. I've used this model a few times with people of, um, cause I have so many depressed friends, you know, and, and their work is a lot of way they're depressed. And I was like, what would you pay? Like if you would have a monthly service, like a streaming service, you know, to Netflix, what would you pay to have your anxiety just like <laughs> gone for the most part? Not, not, I mean, you're still going to have day to day things, but, but you know what I mean? Like you're not gonna be an anxious, depressed person. What would you pay? Would you pay 50 bucks? Would you pay a hundred dollars? Would you pay $2,000 a month to not, to go in and actually enjoy life, to just walk around like, yeah, I love life that's your cost. That's what you're willing to make, right? That's your, that's what you're willing to make as a salary. And like, I made a considerable more in all the other, well, not as a grad student, but I made a considerable more in business. And like, I hated, it. I was miserable. I, I hated making all that money. And, um, so would I like to make more as a teacher? Hell yeah. Right. But, um, but can I survive with the mindset and the, the way that I feel? Yeah, absolutely. And I think other people, they they have to decide what's more important to them, right? Like, what do you want out of life? Like, uh, like, I think that's a question that like so many people don't actually really think about that much. Like, they think they do or whatever. But it's such an important like, what are your incentives? Do you want to have kids? Do you want to be successful at the cost of your happiness or whatever? Or do you just want to enjoy whatever this bullshitty weird thing that we're doing is? And if that's your thing, if all you do really want is just to just have a good time and and feel satisfied, um, then like these kind of jobs or, or figuring out, like, again, I don't think teaching is just everybody should teach. There's a lot of shitty teachers out there. Um, but <laughs> I, I think that finding that thing that, that doesn't inherently like you're not driven to just a, as a status symbol or as a thing you're doing it for, you know, these other exterior reasons, right? Finding that thing of, you know, yeah, you're going to have to make sacrifices, like financial sacrifices for sure. I, I, I genuinely do. My sister is rich. Uh, my sister took off, they own dental, they live in Albuquerque and they own dental offices. And every time I'm with them, I, I feel like a fucking peasant. Like they are spending hundreds of dollars on dinner and stuff. And, 
and yeah, there's a little bit of a meh feeling about that. Like I don't, I don't always like when they buy my dinner. I, we've gotten to a cool place where I'm like, no, if you guys want to go to that Michelin place, you're buying my fucking dinner. I'm not going and spending. Two <laughs> and they're fine with that. They're rich. They're like, yeah, we want you there. That's fine. We'll pay for your dinner. And so for a long time, that was a shame of mine where I was like, Ugh, I don't, I want to pay for my own things. And so, but I, so there are trade-offs that you have to do, but like there are trade-offs that I have found that are, I'm more than willing to make. Like they really do. Um, I don't know. They make me like, I, I would pay a lot of money for that. And am, I guess for feeling great. I do not. I love going into work every day. I really don't have bad days going into work. Does yeah. that make sense? Does yeah. that answer? No, that totally makes sense. The only thing, the only thing I'm wondering is, are they still going to pay for dinner after listening to this not. podcast? <laughs> uh, they, I trash them. I'm, I have a really <laughs> awkward relationship with my sister. I make, but she makes constant jokes about me with that random shit, and hers are always like rich people jokes, which is not even a joke. No, uh, oh rich. no! <laughs> like oh no, what an in- yeah, your pantry is bigger than my kitchen, um, but. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I like, it would be great, obviously, if, if teachers made more or if some of these other jobs that we like firemen, man, like firemen are amazing. They're like superheroes. They should make a lot more than they do. So, and again, I think that's part of a socialisty. Again, I, I think the socialist thing is just one of the, it's the closest thing that I found. I don't think it's the right exact thing of saying what I think we should do. I just think we should have better incentives and certain things in society should be valued more than they are, even if they're going to come at a loss, right? Even if you're not going to make money off that thing. And so I think firemen and teachers and all these other type of people, you'd get a lot more better people. Like we would get way better teachers if you did offer more things for that. I have lots of friends that if you offered them, you know, good benefits and salary and stuff, they'd come do this. They like it, but they're not going to because they make a lot of money being miserable. Um, so <laughs> no, hundred percent. I mean, the education system is fucked and you know one of the biggest things that we can do is definitely pay teachers more to incentivize um you know just more more skill and talent and experienced individuals uh you know coming to that field sounded like a socialist there man. yeah that's um <laughs> he's he you know he's been very persuasive tonight so were you, wait, was that the bit? Was were are you guys like were the, was this going to be like a devil's advocate? No, thing, I, I'd say like, uh, I'd say we're pretty in sync with 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 what you you believe. I think that uh, we try to trump ourselves up to be uh, neoliberal imperialists, but I, I think we do a very bad job with that. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think when you say social, like I'm a socialist, it's like I wish the whole world was the Soviet <laughs> Union yeah. in the 1930s. Yeah. And it's like no, God no. No, no, I don't think any of those. No, no socialist model really has like nailed this thing. I just wanted to be more part and, of the conversation. And I, and I think you know, in this country, the Cold War really did a number on people. Where, and granted, things got a little bit more decent for individuals associating themselves with "quote unquote" socialism during the Bernie Sanders campaign, where he openly was talking about democratic socialism and, and the benefits of it. But there is still such like a Cold War era, almost like a residual trauma, where nobody wants to say it out loud. And they'll do like any form of gymnastics in describing their ideal form of society where it's like, yeah, you know, I think that, you know, we shouldn't have homeless people and, you know, people should be getting decent health care. And yeah, you know, why shouldn't teachers be making, you know, 70, 80 K as a standard and <laughs> like the prescriptions are all there. Right. And, and I, I think a lot of elements in this country, especially in recent years, embody some of the overall ambitions of quote-unquote socialist systems in Europe, right? This whole push to get women into STEM, right? I read this really interesting interview 
there, there's a project in Germany, I forgot what it's called, but they're trying to document as many narratives as possible from those who live in the East, right? They're getting a little bit older. The legacy of the German Democratic Republic um, is kind of fading away as populations start aging out or dying out. And they've been interviewing people who grew up, lived, studied, and worked in the GDR. And the GDR was like, fucked society for all intents and purposes but also like preserving some of the things that worked and they were talking to this woman they're like hey she was like a mechanical engineer or something in east germany at the time and when germany reunified they were interviewing her like what were your biggest shocks for like a reunified germany what things about the capitalist west completely took you off guard she's like yeah you know i was just really taken aback by this like notion of women in stem like this campaign, we must get women into engineering. She's like, that was like a fucking given in in in, in German in East German society, right? You you are a woman, you're gonna go <laughs> to a polytechnic, you know, study mathematics, and then you're gonna go to work. Like, okay, big fucking deal. And then like this has to be like a campaign here, right? It's like, oh, we have to get more girls into technical education. It's like, well, fuck yeah, <laughs> like absolutely. But it has to be dressed up, and you have to, you know a separate batch of slogans has to be cooked up that cannot mimic at all um, of what maybe some of the socialist movements of the 20th century tried to advocate for. So there was a weird level of some like equality progressivism that was like the, like the women thing with like uh, Russia and or Soviet and like world war two. I mean, they were, they had tons of women fighters. They were like, of course we're going to use, we want to use all the half the population to fight. (laughs) Send them to the front. Yeah, we're like uh, with <laughs> Valentina Tereshkova. She's still alive. She's like a batshit crazy politician for the United Russia Party right now. Um, you know, kind of the quote unquote party of Putin. But she was the first woman in space. And like, she didn't want to go to space. She wasn't like, like, she wasn't really like trying to do it. But they're like, we must send a woman into space. And they just fucking sent her up there. And she's the only person that got out there, saw Earth, came back like more conservative and cynical about everything. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's awesome uh, um. okay well let's let's bring this kind of sort of to a close um, maybe we can uh, gather up some predictions about the state of work and, and capitalism moving forward not what we want to see but uh, what we think will happen Brock uh, go first Um. What you said what we think right mm-hmm. unfortunately I don't I I, I want to be a positive person, optimist, but I don't see <laughs> good things. Like, I, I think I actually, to be honest, I actually think that we're at a, a precipice right now. Um, and I'm sure we've been billions of precipices, but like, I don't know. There's a, th- there's a theory with, um, the, it's called the Fermi paradox of like, why aren't there other civilizations that we've seen in the universe? Right. And they have this idea that there's something called the great filter. And it's this concept that there's just something that stops civilizations from getting to a certain point where they would be technologically enough for us to actually see them and have evidence of them in the universe. So are we the first or just is it super hard or whatever? Um, and I think one of the one of this interesting concepts of the great filter could be is that our our engineering capacity and our, our ability to be creative in engineering is is way surpassing our wisdom. Right. It's just we're not able to keep up like we are. If you've ever read the book Jurassic Park. Um, you know, it turned into a movie of like dinosaurs go wild. But if you read the actual book, Michael Crichton was a pretty smart guy. He was a Harvard trained MD um, and quit that to be a a writer and turned out successfully for him. But uh, the whole point, like the the underlying ethical message of Jurassic Park, when you read it, is that 
just because you can do something scientifically or engineering doesn't mean you should freaking do it. Ian Malcolm, and throughout the whole thing, he's a much pro more prominent character in the book, and he's constantly monologuing about this. While all this shit is happening, he's there going, uh, why <laughs> are we doing this? Why are we and there's this actually if, if you'll can i like read this real quick thing i have it i have it queued up because i thought it would be real go cool. for it um it is a quote from that book and it's one of my favorite freaking things this is ian malcolm so or i guess michael Crichton as ian malcolm um most kinds of power require substantial sacrifice by whomever wants the power there's an apprenticeship a discipline lasting many years whatever kind of power you want president of a company black belt in karate spiritual guru whatever it's you it's yours to seek if you have if you put in the time the practice and the effort you must give up a lot to get it it has to be very important to you and once you've attained it it's your power it can't be given away it resides in you it is literally the result of your discipline now what's interesting about this process is that by the time someone has acquired the ability to kill with his hands He's also matured to the point where he won't use it unwisely. So that kind of power has a built-in control. The discipline of getting the power changes you so that you won't abuse it. But scientific power is like inherited wealth, attained without discipline. You read what others have done, and you take the next step. You do it very young, and you can make progress very fast. There's no discipline lasting many decades. There's no mastery. Old scientists are ignored. There's no humility before nature. There's only a get-rich-quick-make-a-name-for-yourself-fast philosophy. Cheat, lie, falsify, doesn't matter. Not to you or to your colleagues. No one will criticize you. No one has any standards. They're all trying to do the same thing, to do something big and to do it fast. And because you can stand on the shoulders of giants, you can accomplish something quickly. You don't even know exactly what you've done, but already you reported it, patented it, and sold it. And the buyer will have even less discipline than you. The buyer simply purchases the power like any commodity. The buyer doesn't even conceive that any discipline mm. might be necessary. And to me, that is a that gets at a core root of something I think we're doing wrong going forward in this thing, especially with AI on the cusp and on all this other stuff that we see, climate issues, is that we are really reaching this era where our wisdom has to catch up. We are killing ourselves. We're destroying our environment. We are destroying our brains, our attention spans. We're changing us fundamentally. And we think that we're doing it the right way or that we're doing good things, but we're, I don't think that we are. And so I think in some capacity, our, we have to grow up. As a, I've always had this like almost fetishy desire for like an alien to come to Earth and just shame <laughs> shit out of us. Be like, what? You guys could feed everyone and you don't, you pieces of shit. And all of us are there like, oh, God. And I just always thought that would be so satisfying <laughs> to see that. It's like humans are so, we're just like, we're good people. We're interesting. We're amazing. But we're also so shitty. And I just think we have to grow up, right, in order to wield the technology that we're about to wield. And AI is, I've been so anti-AI for decades. Now I'm just on the, the magic ride of wherever the fuck this is going. But, um, but it just, it's one of those things that's going to push that, you know, it's going to be like a giant gun, nuclear weapons, all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. It's just this huge gun to our head. And we have to decide what we're going to do with it. I, I've got the perfect quote to summarize what you're saying. Uh, it's from another podcast that I listened to. But we've got godlike technology medieval institutions and stone age brains like, that's <laughs> that's perfect honestly <laughs> that's exactly i really think that's one of the root of our issues is that we just don't we haven't we haven't figured that out we are so good at inventing things but not managing it so bleak i guess is my ultimate resolution <laughs> 
I think that I think that it's probably wow. not. If COVID convinced me of anything, like I used to teach climate stuff, right? I used to be so positive about like, come on, guys, we can do this. And now I teach climate stuff like George Carlin. <laughs> you also like, <laughs> talk about how you get how shitty your future is going to be. And like, I just at COVID, we all we had to do was wear a mask and do a few things. And like, no one could fucking do that. So it's like, I, I, as soon as I watched all that, I was like, we're not fixing the climate. We're not do that's way <laughs> too complicated. We're not fixing that. So I think we're just riding this out and seeing where it goes. Hopefully AI will give us better solutions, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that would be ironic, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm too depressed to even think of anything. Andre, <laughs> take it away, man. Um, there's a great uh, Twitter account called Depressed David Lynch. I don't know if you two have ever heard of it, but it's a guy who just posted It's like a 30-second clip of David Lynch sitting. It's the second time he's come up on the show. But he's sitting in a car. It's black and white, and it's just David Lynch going... I am so depressed. I have no idea what's going on. And the guy's like, yeah, I'm going to post that clip every day until I stop being depressed. And it was like months upon months of just this clip being reposted every day. And eventually he stopped posting. And everybody's like, oh, shit. Like, he finally recovered. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I I think that... I was about to say he's, like, dead. I, I, think, like, he God, I think he provided, like, a status <laughs> update. Like, he didn't, like, off himself. Like, he actually managed to, like, work through his problems. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, Brock, you some are... are current fade up pretty well um i think i might offer up a little bit more of an optimistic morsel to it and i think maybe this is something coming from the next generation right where as much as i criticize and complain about gen z and, and some of their behaviors i am noticing a lot of good things as well and there does seem to be a good foundation of critical thought that they're bringing into the zeitgeist to a certain extent and I think with all of this turmoil that we're about to face down with regards to the unleashing of AI onto our you know, civilization to a certain extent, there is going to be a step back. And I think that's – I don't know if we're going to go full Ted Kaczynski, but I think we are going to um, – <laughs> we're going to have more and more people that are going to search out some of those more authentic – and enriching experiences. And I think we are going to have more and more people that start taking steps back from the rat race and considering going into teaching, for instance, as opposed to sitting in like a Deloitte tower somewhere, uh, crunching numbers. And I think we've, we've seen those things historically as undercurrents to a lot of the historical trends we've talked about, right? Like with industrialization, you also had people that kind of did seek out, um, maybe whatever semblance of a cottage industry they could find. They moved back to the countryside. Um, you know, the Mennonites still exist and they still manage to attract more and more people to their religion. Uh, I, I think that everything will happen as it's set up to happen as Brock, you described it, but there's going to be more and more deviation from the path and people are going to find each other and they're going to maybe read a book that really blows their mind. and They're going to go seek out like a higher truth. Um, so, it's going to be called that. That book's going to be called "The Art of Being Human," and it's going to be a New York yep. Times bestseller. <laughs> and I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, man. Like the, the, there has to be some sort of, like, yeah, bounce back into into just touching grass and to the basics of of the human experience. We, we are, you know. Like Brock said, we, you know, we're on a bullet train, and there's there aren't even plants on this train. <laughs> there's nothing green, and shit's getting fucked real fast. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. I don't, I, I have no idea personally, but um, it's interesting, yeah. I guess. 
to say the least. I just embraced the existential whatever. You know, it's just like fine. Let's just ride this out. Let's see where it goes. It's gonna be in- <laughs> whatever it is. It's gonna be an interesting. I mean, to a certain thing, extent, but, yeah. I cannot wait to be fucking like seventy years old and be that like George Carlin type of figure. Just like <laughs> like. Yeah, I don't know any, you know, like see all the shit, like internalize, like fucking make, like let it make you angry, and then just be a fucking curmudgeonly like stick in the mud. I think, I think honestly, I think millennials actually have a, and I every generation thinks this, right? But I think millennials actually have a really genuine, like interesting insight, yeah, to that thing because we we yeah, saw both yeah. sides. I remember growing up without all that shit. I remember I, yeah. I, I talked to my students about this the other day where I was like. I remember what I would leave the house at like seven in the morning and my parents had no fucking idea where I was all day. I would just kind of wander back in at night. And they're like, I could have been down with a dude in a van or whatever. Yeah. They had no idea. And these kids, that's like child abuse. You'll get your kids taken away from uh. you if you do shit like that today. And like, I think millennials have this, like, we have this weird insight to what it was like before. And then we've embraced it after, but like, we know both things. And I don't know. Like we are probably all going to be like that old, like sitting on our old iPads while all this fucking virtual shit. Like yeah. you fucking kids and your. <laughs> we just had iPhones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On our Game Boys and shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yolo. It's gonna be wild. This is a good um, time, man. I I had a good time with this. I the, I yeah, you guys are cool guys. Yeah, no, it's cool to talk it, to man. You. Welcome back anytime. Hey, the show's over. We hope you enjoyed it. We definitely enjoyed making it. Uh, great talking to Brock. Please hit the subscribe button, like, and comment as well. And be sure to reach out to us on Twitter, radius underscore of. Catch you next time.